Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hey, Z-Pack, what's up? It's Dr. Z. Okay, today I have back returning the show my good friend, Dr. Ron Sinha. He is an internal medicine physician and a master of wellness of all kinds, including corporate wellness at my old alma mater, the Palo Alto Medical Foundation here in the Bay Area. Ron, welcome back to the show, man. Great to be here again. Thanks for the invite. Dude, so we always talk about stuff that like gets me excited, like metabolic disease and South Asian uh, people and their general health. But you, during the whole pandemic, you've become kind of this guru of how we can actually, we all talk about how do we not get COVID? How do we cure COVID? How do we treat COVID? But we're not talking about, well, what happens to you that can lower your risk of getting really sick from COVID? And that's something you've been talking about a lot. So that's why I wanted to have you back so we can really dig into that and be a nice social distance away instead of on Zoom, which was just no fun. How tired of you of Zoom, by the way? Very tired. That's why I'm here. This is like a vacation for me. So thank you for inviting me to your studio. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's like the it's a really the only reason I still do the show. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm like whatever, you know, medicine, whatever. But man, I get to see people. It's <laughs> right. great. Um, so so tell me how you like to think about this and talk to your patients about this, who are many of whom are at risk. Yeah, and you know, I never thought that after our last show I'd be back here talking about COVID and lifestyle again. I was hoping it'd be a passing ship. Mm. But but what I can tell you is, since that show till now, and after seeing patients, it's been gratifying because a lot of people that have followed these lifestyle principles and really focused on their own immune system, their own metabolism, they've told me that they've sailed through COVID. Many of them have just gotten infection and they're like, it was nothing more than just a cold. And this is anecdotal. Again, I don't have a randomized control study to show you that this is truly the fact, but it is incredible to see that people that have prioritized their health, their wellness, their metabolism, their diet, they're really doing super well. So I wanna basically bring some of that feedback in terms of what are the key elements, I think, that help people get get through COVID-19 in a really um, eventless sort of way. Yeah, and this is this is key because so many people have very mild courses. And we're not talking about long haulers and all of that, that may yeah. be a different show, but we're talking about people who really, like you said, they sail through it. Right. And if we can optimize people's chances of being that person. Some of it's genetic, right, though? It's not all yeah, lifestyle. Exactly, you're yeah. right. There, there is a genetic, a genetic component, but like with most chronic health conditions, the lifestyle trumps the genetics by so much. So that's what we'll focus on today. And yeah. that's important to, to double down on, the lifestyle trumps genetics. So you, you, the genetics aren't a doom statement here. It's not like a predestined thing. You can actually outwit your own genetics by changing lifestyle. Exactly right. Yeah, so let's talk about it. So what are you, how are you thinking about this? Teach me how to be safe. So my new way of reframing COVID 
COVID-19, we know it's an infectious disease, but if you really want to think about how you can literally sail through it, you got to think of it as a metabolic disease. Because really when COVID-19 infects our body, what a lot of people don't realize is it actually changes the way our cells perform metabolism. So as I was thinking about metabolism can be a complicated word, and Z, I was thinking about how do I make this colorful for your audience who loves music and creativity? So I thought back to the summer where there was a song that kept getting played on the radio that got really tired of, and it was Watermelon Sugar by this Harry Styles guy. <laughs> so I'd hear it all the time, and then one of my friends sent me the video. I watch a video, I'm like, okay, this is really annoying, but I've got to reframe this in some way where I can take this song that destroys my soul, and I can turn it into a teaching <laughs> Watermelon point. Watermelon Sugar. <laughs> oh, man, now it's okay. going to be stuck in every. So exactly. And that's the way we're going to make this stick. So Brilliant. last night I went to the grocery store and I brought- Did water. you wear a mask? Uh, of course I uh -huh. did. Yes, all the okay. way. N95, Good. baby. Yeah. <laughs> all right, here we go. So here we go. This is watermelon right here. Raise it okay. up a little bit. Yep, yep. Yeah, you there it, it is. You see it? Yeah. So this is a cross section of a cell. And last time we talked about it being a lung cell, but I'm going to make this an immune cell, a macrophage to be specific, because our immune cells, just like our muscle cells, actually have their own metabolism. So if this is a cross-section of a cell, this orange persimmon that I put here, this is your mitochondria, okay? Nice. So we're gonna pause there for a second. So basically this area, the red area is what we call the cytoplasm or the cytosol, and this is basically your mitochondria. Now it'd be very easy for us to think about glucose here. This is a watermelon sugar. And when we think about metabolism, basically what we want to do when we exercise, when we want our immune cells to optimize their performance, is we want them to tap into the mitochondria to produce energy so the cell works and fires at the right level. But what we're seeing in COVID-19 is when you start getting short of breath, your body produces chemicals, and one of them is called HIF, hypoxia-inducible factor. What that literally does is it actually shuts off the mitochondrial metabolism, so you can't generate as much ATP. As a result of that, Z, what's happening is in this part of the cell, our body's using glucose and creating a lot of what we call aerobic glycolysis and anaerobic metabolism. And those are fancy words for saying that we're in a hypermetabolic state. So literally our immune cell is doing a boot camp class or doing a HIIT training session. And the result of doing metabolism in this portion outside the mitochondria, you're getting massive loads of cytokine, you're getting lactate production from that anaerobic metabolism. So this becomes a very high energy cell. And this is very similar to what happens in a lot of cancers. We call this the Warburg, uh, the Warburg um, hypothesis, where basically we're shifting metabolism here, but we're not tapping into the power of the mitochondria. So I'm going to pause here for a second in case we need to clarify so, something. So, so yeah. excellent. So, you know, yeah. when, you, when you learn in high school, you know, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, exactly. right? Yep. So what we're saying here is you're saying... A, there's a shift metabolically from an aerobic sort of metabolism that generates a ton of ATP efficiently in the mitochondria to a more cytosol-based anaerobic metabolism that this, this particular infection may trigger. And that explains to some extent, some of the lactate production, the cytokine production and the general disorder. And you brought up this Warburg effect or mm -hmm, Warburg effect, exactly, yeah. which is a theory around cancers that these cancers actually tend to anaerobically metabolize. They lose the ability to respire oxygen properly. And that's one of the dysfunctions. And so you're actually potentially linking metabolically these kind of concepts with COVID-19. Exactly right. Got it. And then I wanna come back to that one switch molecule the HIF, the hypoxia-inducible hypoxia factor, because- Yeah, I've never when, heard of that. Yeah, yeah, so the HIF, the interesting thing about HIF is this is something our body produces when we exercise. So when we exercise really intensively, our body produces HIF, it shuts off the mitochondria, and that's why we go into anaerobic metabolism. Our mm -hmm. muscles burn, we're breathing heavy, our heart rate goes up. So our immune cells do the exact same thing. 
So the key here is we don't want HIF to turn on too quickly because that's what's going to rev up our metabolism and cause that hyperinflammatory response. So let's fast forward to somebody who's been sedentary for the last several months, hasn't gotten any exercise. With even minimal physical activity, their body's going to switch on that HIF and shut off this aerobic, um, this yeah, aerobic metabolism of the mitochondria. So that's why I'm kind of linking metabolism at the cellular level to what's happening to people when they become short of breath at the macro level from being inactive. So this is kind of like a couch potato syndrome. So if you're deconditioned aerobically, your tendency to turn on this HIF and, and go into anaerobic metabolism has a lower threshold. So you're more likely to do that quickly. That's exactly right. Right. Yep. And so the question then becomes, if, you, if COVID takes advantage of that pathway to cause havoc, and you're more resistant to activating that pathway through aerobic conditioning, being in better shape, for lack of a better term, you might have a better chance of riding out that's exactly right. And remember, we, we talked about before that the lungs are really the primary target. So when you have more aerobic resilience and a more aerobic fitness, that sensation of air hunger, that threshold basically goes up so significantly that you're not going to feel that sensation of hypoxia. You might recall we talked about sort of mask wearing fitness where you wear a mask and you go out, you know, people that are not very fit, you ask them to walk a quarter of a mile and they feel suffocated. But many of my patients who have encouraged you to just go out and exercise with your mask on, they found that it does not cause as much hypoxia after just a couple of weeks. So their ability to actually exercise in a low oxygen environment, aka wearing a mask, is actually significantly heightened. They're able to do that much better. So my theory based on this is if they were to get an infection like COVID, it would affect their lungs because they've built up that aerobic foundation. They're not going to switch on all these inflammatory signals and molecules that can shift them into this hyper-inflammatory meta metabolic state that we talked about. Mm. Do you think there's any, and it brings up the question that I, I don't know if anyone's looked at this, but like higher altitude people who are adapted to higher altitudes, like Colorado, et cetera, are they more resistant to- So I love that question. I I've been looking for that data. I haven't found it, but you're right. That's exactly the hack. So even before COVID-19, I should have brought it with me. I had a high altitude mask I was using to train because I found that, you know, I actually didn't have a very strong foundation of aerobic fitness before. I was more of a, a hit type athlete. I did a lot of stop and go type sports, but I found that just by wearing a mask, a high altitude mask, I was able to improve my aerobic fitness much more quickly, exactly by what you said, by mimicking that low altitude or that high altitude environment. Because in that environment, because you've got thinner air, your bone marrow produces more EP you produce more red blood cells, your oxygen delivery capacity goes up. So that's literally what you're trying to do through aerobic fitness so you don't switch on those dangerous chemicals that shift you over to anaerobic uh, metabolism and, you know, lactate production. So, you know, and last time we talked, we spoke a bit, and this was in the early days of the thing, we spoke a bit about how <sighs> metabolic syndrome being in bad shape, for lack of a better term, yeah. sets you up for a kind of pyrogenesis, a fire creation yep. of yep. inflammation that is really felt to be one of the big problems in COVID. Now, again, we're not, these links haven't been elucidated right. clearly, but we can theorize and say, okay, well, what's the downside of addressing this through better, being in better shape, eating better, improving your metabolic health? Those would help you anyways. So if it also helps you not die or get very sick of COVID, that's an added benefit, right? Totally agree. Yeah. And th this word we keep bringing up, mitochondria, when you look at insulin resistance, we're finding that a lot of these chronic health conditions are defects of the mitochondria. It just cannot produce energy efficiently. So even pre-COVID, we know that individuals that have insulin resistance, their mitochondria 
is impaired. It just can't produce ATP at the right level. So then when you're eating even normal to elevated amounts of carbohydrate, if it can't get to the mitochondria and produce energy, it's going to sit in the cytosol. It's going to cause all types of other damage. The mitochondria is so pooped out that basically it's producing these toxic radicals that are further damaging the cell and making insulin resistance and inflammation worse. So it's really, you're right, taking that same disease template for cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, and now layering it onto COVID-19, because like you said, there's so much overlap with those conditions in COVID-19. So is this similar to a Jason Fung sort of algorithm where the idea is that we're really just packing a lot of glucose into people that don't that can't use it in their mitochondria and it's causing this problem. That's right. So, you know, I think there has been a lot of focus on the input in terms of how much food are we shoving in our face, you know, throughout the day. And I think that's really important. But I got to say, after doing this work for over a decade, now what I'm finding in a lot of my patients is even though they have clung to fasting, low carbohydrate, ketogenic strategies, I've seen dramatic improvements in their numbers. You know, what I'm seeing is because I've followed these patients for so long, they've been sedentary overall for so long that after age 35, after age 40, even though they're doing the same sorts of fasting diets, we're starting to see the signs of prediabetes. And the reason for that is because even though the input has been reduced, the mitochondrial output has not been enhanced. And that's where exercise and aerobic performance is essential. Because literally with aging, just like the condition sarcopenia, where our muscles become a little bit weaker as we age, I call this mitopenia, where our mitochondria with each year of aging, our mitochondria naturally start to age, so they can't handle the same inputs of food. So if you literally want to slow down aging, yes, you have to slow down the input of food through fasting and just proper nutrition strategies, but you've also got to enhance the mitochondria's ability to take that energy, that the throughput basically is what I'm talking about. And I think a lot of people, you know, I have a lot of patients at CMEZ and they basically do not want to exercise. They want to do everything. They would fast for 24 hours, then go, you know, exercise for 30 minutes. And I'm like, like, that's just not going to win in the long run. You have to fix the mitochondrial issue or you're not going to be able to avoid all these chronic health issues and COVID-19, you know, serious responses. So really what you're doing is you're addressing both sides of the equation, the input and the throughput. It's kind of like in the ER when we're on divert, right? All the beds are full. The the, the ER docs maxed out. We're, we're understaffed. The nurses are going one to eight and you just can't process it. And as we get older, the analogy then is our mitochondria are kind of like that. They're like an ER on divert. So either you can improve the amount of patients coming in by decreasing it, changing your diet, or you can build another wing or enhance your current wing in your ER. And you're talking about exercise as a way to do that. And again, this all relates to COVID because again, mitochondrial function may correlate to the way COVID causes havoc through whether it's inflammation or whether it's the the HIF-related um, uh, uh, energy mismanagement, et cetera. That's right. Yeah. So, so how do you then talk to your patients about exercise? How, how do so we So then, do you know, when I see patients, and many of them, like I said, have adopted sound nutritional strategies. Others have not. You know, this has been a very tough time. People are stressed out. They're baking and they're ordering and they're stress eating a lot, which is understandable. But then I've got to weigh those things. So if I have somebody that has been doing the right things from a dietary perspective, but they become increasingly sedentary. I have labs to see from before and after, and I've seen the trend lines where their glucose numbers are going up, their inflammatory markers are going up. So these are subtle signs to me that their metabolic function is deteriorating despite them doing the right dietary things. So then I have to talk to them about sound exercise strategies. How can we boost that mitochondrial function? In others, unfortunately, um, you know, some of them are actually exercising more than ever because they're not sitting in cars commuting. They're not traveling on business. 
the diet hasn't been quite optimized. So their throughput's okay, but they're putting in so much food into the system that we've got really what scientists call this situation is metabolic gridlock. There's like traffic gridlock inside the mitochondria. The mitochondria cannot handle that input. So you're right. You got to balance that input and the throughput as well. But you look at metabolic markers, you take a good history and you can kind of see where we need to sort of um, put the emphasis, ideally on both. But some people that just have to focus on one thing, I try to find out what's the thing that we can optimize first. And you know, one question I wanted to ask you is when you uh, when you have mismatch, too much in, can't get the throughput, that glucose goes to fat, correct? Right. Intra-abdominal fat is the worst sort of storage capacity for that. Can you talk a little bit about the consequences of where that glucose goes. Yeah, good point. So when the glucose can't get inside that, let's say muscle cell, you've got this overflow glucose traffic. And a lot, some of it, for example, will go to your liver and the liver can produce triglycerides, extra you know, hyperglycemia, glucose is being basically pumped up by the liver. And the fat, you're right, for a lot of us, it goes not just to fat itself, but that belly fat, that visceral inflammatory fat. And we talked about last time how that visceral fat produces a lot of the cytokines, right? Compared to the other compartment. So again, that's making your cells and your body more flammable. So if it were to get infection, that cytokine storm might be more significant. And that's, there's a bit of a, um, a genetic and also an ethnic link. Like mm -hmm. some individuals like Asians and Indians like ourselves, if we get into that overflow situation, a greater proportion of that traffic will go to visceral fat versus certain Europeans or Caucasians where yes, some will go to visceral, but a lot of it goes to the subcutaneous fat. So they're gaining more mass in terms of poundage, but they're not getting as much going into those visceral compartments. And that's a tricky thing because a lot of Asians or people that have this insulin resistance paradigm, they are socking away that hidden fat. They're not gaining a lot of weight, but maybe an inch or two here, maybe their liver function tests are trending up, which is a sign that the liver is becoming overwhelmed. So you can pick up on these subtle clues in people that have that visceral tendency. So you're getting this sort of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in these guys where it's just depositing. And you had termed this in your book, skinny fat. Yeah. And it's this idea that you don't look like a lot of Asians, you know, like my wife or her family, skinny, 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 skinny. But they, you know, like my wife had gestational diabetes. And uh, even though she's rail thin, her dad is rail thin. Yeah. He has almost frank diabetes now. And I suspect there's intra-abdominal obesity. There's some genetic component too. But, but uh, you know, he eats a very high fruit diet and there's a lot of fruit sugars and things like that and not a lot of exercise. Yeah, and it's really an imperfect serum. So one other thing I'm seeing, again, speaking of COVID-19, some of my seniors, in addition to that excess visceral fat, and again, we talked about liver function tests. The other thing is sometimes we're seeing C-reactor protein go up, which is a marker for inflammation. Um, often we'll see the triglycerides go up, which is a sign that the liver's been overwhelmed. So these are internal markers that we are accumulating more fat rather than the poundage or the body mass index. The other thing that I'm seeing just from the excessive inactivity, and I'm seeing this a lot in my seniors is that they're losing muscle mass, right? Mm. And if they're losing muscle mass and strength, again, coming back to mitochondrial throughput, it's an imperfect storm, right? Increased input leading to visceral fat formation. And then you don't have the muscular strength and the physical activity to really burn that energy and get rid of that. And that's something I'm seeing a lot of because people have been so incredibly sedentary during this time. Could, could there be a component that then would explain the predisposition of COVID to hurt older people in that they have less mitochondrial capacity? 
I think I think that to one of many things. As we yeah. know, the immune system deteriorates. We talk about mitochondrial function. But yeah, if you add sarcopenia and reduce leg strength, whenever I talk to my mom, she lives in Central California. I'm so going to be seeing her next week. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Bakersfield. I think we had that. Fresno, yeah. Yeah, Fresno, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. And so whenever I see her, and she knows when I'm coming because she's like, oh God, Ron's going to be evaluating me. Yes. But I'm always checking, mom, let me see you get out of a chair without the armrest. Are you doing your squats? I'm constantly assessing. I do this with my seniors. I'm constantly assessing her leg strength. When I go for a walk for her, it's a casual walk, but I'm actually looking at her walking speed. Is she able to get up on curbs okay? Because I'm constantly monitoring, is she maintaining that muscle strength? I mean, obviously, it's important for aging. I mean, there are studies that show that leg strength is probably one of the most important indicators of long life and quality of life, more than anything. It even impacts brain health. But in addition to that, in this environment, I want her metabolism to be sound. So leg strength is just so important to me. Mm, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I think, again, if you're talking about preparing for the COVID marathon, yeah, right? And, and this is our highest risk population, the sarcopenia, the, the, the leg strength, the sort of ability to do your ADLs too is probably a predictor just in terms of how deconditioned you'll get, Absolutely. what your lung capacity is. But let's talk about, now let's say the average, let's say a 30 to 40 year old person who has the gained the pandemic five or 10 and is constantly under some low level of stress, whether it's due to neurosis and worry about the pandemic itself, which is a self-defeating, self-feeding prophecy. There's a lot of cognitive distortion and catastrophizing that we do. And it, it you know, there's cortisol and there's mm. stress. How are you seeing that feed into metabolic um, disorders that put us more at risk for actually getting ill when we get the disease? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's indirect links because when people are under that cortisol onslaught, they're not making the proper decisions about lifestyle, right? I mean, I know when I'm stressed, I'm not craving broccoli. I don't feel like fasting. You just want to eat everything in front of you. When you're feeling overwhelmed, the last thing you think about is stepping out and exercising. So indirectly, it leads to that. But we also know that people that do tend to be in this sort of you know storm of emotions, and especially if they're really storing those emotions in their head and ruminating quite a bit, that actually causes an increased immune system response from that. Um, you know, so uh, a study that they showed where they actually gave questions to individuals, and they found that one group tended to do more natural cognitive reframing around stressful situations and scenarios versus individuals that are ruminators. They found that ruminators, ruminators actually produce more cytokines. And they mm. knew that because they can measure it in the nose after exposing them to cold virus. This is not surprising right, 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 to you, right. but it's direct evidence. So I tell people, you know, this is a catchword that I use. Instead of immunity, I want you to think of immunity because your emotions affect your immune system. And when you look really calm, cool, and collected on the outside, and I know this because I'm a recovering ruminator, I still work with this a lot, Mm. but a lot of my individuals that are very calm and serene looking on the outside, your immune system knows everything that's happening inside. So when you're repressing and suppressing emotions, whether it's fear about your mom, yourself, your children being disenschooled, you may be able to hide that to people around you who think, wow, how's he handling this? Your immune system knows you, all your dirtiest secrets. It will react, it'll produce cytokines and cause physiological changes. And I wouldn't have believed this 10 years ago, but after looking at all the data and science, it's pretty compelling what it can do. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> adept meditators have been saying this for a long yes, time, that right? the body keeps the score. Like what you deny, the body unconsciously is telling you already. And so all of this, yeah, like you said, this rumination, it's not just in the mind. The mind and the body are one continuum. And I, I've noticed this, and you, you you mentioned being a recovering co- you know, ruminator. I, I, I'm a continuous ruminator that <laughs> the only thing that has helped me has been meditation and a little bit of getting older. And meditation's remarkable 
remarkable because you can watch yourself ruminate. And now what happens is it's just happened in the last you know few months is I get into these thought patterns where, uh, and this is kind of an aside, but I'll get in a thought pattern where I'll start going down a ruminatory path where something negative, a negative emotion pops up. I then have a thought that arises that puts some meaning to the emotion. like man, I've got to go and do this, this, and this, and this, and that, and the other thing, and this, oh my God, you. I'm worthless. And it starts to spiral, and then normally I would get pulled down that path, and you can feel it, right? You feel it if you pay right. attention. You feel it in your chest, you feel butterflies in your stomach, your mood starts to change, you, you cut off the conversation you're having with your daughter and start ruminating a bit, maybe you open your phone up. Oh man. But you know what happens? Well, my heart beats going up just listening oh, right, to you because just... I can connect to this. <laughs> Isn't that yeah, crazy? Right, so, yeah, you you and I are yeah. very similar. I mean, we're these <laughs> right. immigrant children and in the, in the it's Silicon Valley, we've talked about this. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's crazy is now what happens is I see it happening from a from a one step back, like a witness position and go, oh, look, I'm starting to ruminate. <laughs> Silly mind, look what it's doing, stop. Let's think about something else. And it aborts. For the first time in my life, I've been able, and I have to attribute that a thousand percent to sticking with meditation for the last eight years, yeah. just plodding away at it. And all of a sudden you start to notice the benefits. Yeah, agreed. And you know what, for a lot of the techie companies that I lecture to, as much as I talk about ancient science and meditation, you know, for a lot of people, it's very woo-woo science, oh, heck right? Yeah. yeah. But the good news I have is for a lot of left-brainers, including myself, we have functional MRI studies where they've put individuals through the exact process you're talking about. And they put them through emotional situations, they light up the brain and they can see, is this the emotional part of the brain that's being active or the cognitive, the frontal cortex, the more rational part of the brain. And we definitely want our emotional brain to be active. We're not robots here, but you don't want it to become overactive. And one study I'm gonna quote for you, which was compelling to me, was a study done at UCLA by Dr. Matt Lieberman. And they basically used functional MRIs in people that were having stressful situations. And all they asked them to do was write down that thought in, let's say, two or three words. So we call it thought labeling. Mm. And the minute they wrote down that thought, and actually, give me one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have some post-its here. When nice. you can take a complex emotion and you can really just write it down in two words like that, right? <laughs> like really angry, right? Uh, or, you know extremely jealous, right? So anything, right? Worried about mom, worried about mom or whatever, man. you know, just, just the physical act of writing down that thought in two or three words, it literally reduces the activity of the amygdala and the emotional brain. And it basically lights up the frontal cortex. So, you know, we got extremely jealous, you know, whatever you want to write down, just that process, because when you can take, <laughs> right, this is, are you, <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's incredible. So, you know, as a result of that study, what I started doing, and I got to say, I've been very erratic about this in the past, but for the last few months, I've journaled like nobody's business. When I get up at two or three in the morning, I go into the closet, I brought my journal here, and it is just full. I'm not going to read my journal to you, but yeah, dear diary, <laughs> yeah, today I'm going to see Z Dog MD. I think he's a total hack, but yeah. I'm going to pretend to be what nice. A waste of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. God. <laughs> no, but really, but and I've gotten patients that were naysayers about this to do that, and a lot of times their perfectionists are like, "Well, I'm not a writer." I'm like, just write everything down that you feel. It is one of the most therapeutic things that you can do. The number of studies out there in journaling are incredible, but I found that it's helped me sleep better. I can cognitively just focus much better on my tasks. But even if you're like in an office and you don't have access to a journal, just write it down. If you're afraid people are gonna look at it, 
toss it up, tear it up, put it in the shredder, you know, but just get in the act of writing it down. And the reason why writing it down in just a few words works is because you, you've done a lot of public speaking, right? So when people ask me to give an hour talk on metabolic syndrome, it's pretty easy. But when they ask me to do it in 10 minutes, that's really tough, oh, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So anytime you take complex emotions and situations and you can synthesize it into just a few words or a couple of sentences, that already turns on that Einstein part of the brain, the frontal cortex, and that will automatically tame down the emotional brain. So the writing, whether you have a journal or not, if you can just pencil it down somewhere, some people have told me, can I type it on a computer? Even that's better. You know, I prefer the, you know, the act, the physical act of writing it. And sometimes I'm writing my pa papers like tearing because I'm upset about something, yeah. but it, it's a release. You know? So I think that's something we can all try at least incorporate. This is huge advice. And, and, and you know, the CBT people, the cognitive behavioral therapy people have been talking about this for a long time too. Write down your thoughts and then recognize the distortions in the thought. And what the way I like to think about this is, is we use this analogy on the show, the elephant and the writer, the elephant being the emotional brain that's ancient and old and automatic and um, highly conserved evolutionarily, like we share it with animals. And then you have the writer, the little guy on, the little Indian dude on top that's like <laughs> right. riding the elephant. Come on, come on, go buddy. <laughs> and um, that guy is our rational thinking frontal cortex, neocortex, et cetera. And the thing about that guy is in most cases, he's a slave to the elephant. Right. He exists to serve the elephant and to convince others using his verbal abilities that our elephant is correct. But in the best of us, we can grow his role and writing things down, journaling, recognizing cognitive distortions, recognizing when an emotion triggers a dysfunctional thought where the writer starts to spin his wheels and go down these paths that release cytokines and get you COVID. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, being able to do that allows the writer to grow, our cortical control, like you said, to grow. fMRI data then bears that out. So all of this ancient wisdom collides with modern understanding to give us a framework on, because the real question is, how do we live better? And I think that's a way. We're less anxious, we're happier, we're more connected to our loved ones, we're less likely to die of an inflammatory cytokine <laughs> storm. Right. I think, and our blood pressure is lower. And I mean, have you seen that bear out in your patients? Yes, thank goodness, yes. I mean, people that are doing these sorts of techniques, and one of the things I tell them is, I know it seems overwhelming to do this, but even if we can do it, especially if you're suffering from sleep issues, mm. if you can do it in the evening, just like a few sentences, a couple of paragraphs before bedtime, writing down these worries and concerns, people do sleep better. And one of the biggest connections I'm seeing with blood pressure is sleep dysfunction. When people sleep better, we see their heart rate, if they're wearing an R ring or an Apple Watch or monitor, we see their average heart rate overnight actually starts to drop down because they're able to release a lot of those thoughts and emotions. And when you actually get better quality sleep during the night, you know, the, the downstream effects throughout the day, basically, you see lower, you know, sympathetic responses, heart rate, blood pressure, everything gets much better. So mm. see that over and over. And, you know, uh, sorry, real quickly, I'm seeing more and more teenagers. And interestingly, I've never seen high blood pressure in teenagers since I started. We're seeing a rise in that now, too. And I'm seeing, hearing oh. from pediatricians, and a lot of it is really stress you know, um, you know, stress responses like this. So they benefit a lot from being able to release some of that energy before going to bed, even pulling their bedtimes back by an hour. We see incredible responses just from doing that. Uh, we've been advocating for letting kids sleep for a long time. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and teens tend to go to bed later, which means we ought to be starting school later. That's right. You know, and, and to some extent, it's been nice that the kids have been homeschooled recently. The only nice thing is that they sleep in a little bit more. True. Um, and so they, they have that little bit of regulation. So sleep, sleep dysfunction. So we talked about a few things that we can practically do. So one thing is journaling, writing down emotions, buy a watermelon and stuff a persimmon in it. Um, 
Um, this is like a turdunkey or whatever they call it. Oh, yeah, it, right? turducken. Yeah, yeah. It's a turkey with a duck with a chicken in it. That's right. It's a persimmon with a you need a you need a pickle in there somewhere to represent the sarcoplasmic reticulum. There we you know? go. Nice. That's yeah. right. Um, uh, uh, but so let's talk about some specific things that our audience can do then to sort of tune themselves up because now we have this chance. It's a reset 2020. It's like, oh, everything we thought was true about the world has been like deraveled. And the stress and the, and uh, we got to talk about kids in school at some point here. Yeah. Uh, but what what are, give me some action items. We talked about journaling. What about these sort of, you talked before on our show about breathing exercises. Yeah. How can people start to get active and make that mitochondrial throughput better? Let's Good start with point. That. So, you know, with the breathing, well, let's come back to breathing. So we talked about aerobic function and resilience. And definitely when, you know, one simple technique, and it's become very popular because of a book called Breathe that came out by James yeah. Nestor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and literally the art of nasal breathing has been around for so long, but I've gotten a lot of my patients just to pay attention to how they're breathing when they're in front of screens. So one thing that a lot of people don't realize, and this is something I give in corporate talks, is based on one anecdotal study about <laughs> two thirds of us, when we're in front of a computer and we're composing an email message or we're responding to a message, we stop breathing. So this is an entity some have called email apnea. And it's, it's true. Really? That's right, a right. thing. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. So apnea, obviously not breathing. But when you pay attention to how your breathing is when you're looking at text and electronic media, most of us are under breathing or we stop breathing. So what kind of response does that? Yeah, look at you. You've stopped. Your body's not moving at all, Z. <laughs> Dude, I nearly coded just checking just checking Twitter. I was about to reach across yeah, the table. I know, start like pumping on the chest. Right. Now, yeah. tell me more no, about but, this. But tell, I mean, if you're spending 12 to 14 hours in front of devices all day and you're literally under breathing, what do you think that, what kind of signal is that sending to the body, right? I mean, oxygen is the stuff of life. And if we're not getting enough of it to our tissues, that's going to cause a stress response throughout the day. So literally, even if you're looking at that same message, that piece of media, and you can slow down your breathing by doing nasal breathing or just calm that breathing, you know, if you do that, you're going to start seeing that it's not gonna affect you as much. It's not gonna have the same sort of response. When you exercise, if you can train yourself, even you go for a power walk, you just nasal breathe, it's much more calming afterwards. And as you get fitter and fitter, you'll be able to increase the intensity of your exercise while you're nasal breathing. So that's one thing. The second thing related to breathing, and you totally picked on me for this one, but it is nasal humming. <laughs> oh <laughs> right? yeah, so, that's right. Right? But one thing is, okay, if there's one molecule, which I know you're very familiar with, it's nitric oxide, right? Mm -hmm. The most potent vasodilator in the body. And when we nasal breathe and nasal hum, we're actually causing more nitric oxide production from the paranasal sinuses. That's about where 20% of nitric oxide is released. And nitric oxide is fascinating because it has antiviral ability, so it literally kills COVID on the spot and reduces viral load. It lowers the cytokine response. We know the incredible benefits it has on our lungs. Basically, in terms of being a bronchodilator, it opens up the airways. So the more we can get our body to produce nitric oxide, I would say it's probably one of the most important molecules in really um, increasing our resilience to COVID-19. So, so these are some things we can start with the breathing and some of the physical activity. Yeah, how about, get, so getting moving when you're, say, working from home or something's changed, what are you telling your patients? So the first thing is if we can get from sitting to standing more often, that's a start. But then what I'm really trying to get people to do is <clears throat> in all our meetings, we're not always on video. So some Zoom meetings, we're not on video. So, you know, a lot of people can't see the fact that I'm doing a couple squats while I'm listening to somebody give their presentation. So these micro movements in between <clears throat> meetings or during meetings, these can be powerful for your body. These can be powerful for your body to actually burn more fuel and prevent that metabolic gridlock. Because you know what a lot of people do, Z, is they'll do like a 30 minute or an hour, you know, exercise session in the morning or the evening, right. but then they're sitting continuously 
effectively. And again, I credit them for doing that exercise session because that has a lot of downstream benefit. But if you're not really integrating that interrupted movement and activity throughout the day, you're really not boosting that metabolism in the long run. So that's really what you want to do. So that could be you doing a couple of squats. That can be you. So this is a fabric resistance band that I have here. Can you see that? Yeah. So sometimes I'll stand at my stand-up workstation. I put this around my thighs. And what I do is I just gently put the legs apart so I can put some core activation and have my glutes basically activated as well too. So just being in that posture can get those large muscle groups moving. So even when you're in a static position, there are things that you can do in the course of a meeting that keep your body energized. So these are the creative things I want people to start doing where it's not all or nothing. Either I'm gonna go out and exercise like crazy or I'm gonna sit like a you know a log in front of the computer hunched over all day, so, not breathing, yeah. So th this is very valuable because what you're talking about is engaging the largest muscle groups in the body Body, the big muscles of the leg and the butt and these things that are big sinks of glucose if you use them. And they also, if you generate more muscle mass there, your basal metabolic usage is higher, your throughput is better. And it just, you know, putting an elastic band and doing that while you're sitting on a Zoom call, yeah. turn your video off. This is something I've been telling people. <laughs> I Because look, you can just say, hey guys, I'm just gonna bug out on the video because I got a kid running around. Even though, if, even if you don't, yeah, and just go audio only, and what that does, it allows you to do those things to stretch, right. to pace, to stand up, to walk around. It, it, it's the it's the substance of life for me because I'm so fidgety. I have to do it, mm. but I tell you, because otherwise I might just sit all day. And again, all the sitting is dangerous. Yeah, we don't we don't teach that enough. And you know the the shift that you'll notice when your metabolism goes up is when your metabolism is slow, it takes a lot of effort for you to actually even stand up. You feel like a pile of bricks. So yeah. when I tell people to do this initially, because again, their dietary inputs are too much. They're not used to this. They literally have to set a timer on their phone or their screen to remind them to get up. But once you get in the habit of doing this, the opposite happens. Like sitting for more than 30 minutes or 20 minutes seems unbearable. So you naturally become fidgety. That's a sign that your body's burning glucose and fats more efficiently. It's a subjective sign that your metabolism has now gone from sedentary to more active. It's a beautiful thing. And now if I asked you, hey Z, let's go for a hike right now, your body's already revved up. You don't have to go through an artificial, let me have a cup of coffee first and stretch right. for an hour. Let me think You're about revved it. up and ready to go. Actually, and that's what I want people to feel throughout the day. Yeah, I'd come up with 13 different reasons why I can't. Uh, you know, my chronic Lyme disease, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get another tick bite because right. it would just kill me. Uh, you know, you, it, it, it makes me think, and I, this is speculation because you know, you'll give me science and then I'll throw speculation <laughs> at you because I'm basically Dr. Oz at this point. Um, <laughs> we, we got that on record. Yeah. <laughs> right, so. um, oh, by the way, it was really funny. So there's this woman, um, Christine Northrup, who uh, is uh, gone viral on Facebook talking about anti-vaccine stuff and how nanobots are being injected and Bill Gates is keeping track of us to mm, connect us to cryptocurrency. I just and, stopped breathing, by the way, but keep going. Yeah. <laughs> right, so keep going. And, and the way she appealed to authority in the yeah. beginning of her video, I'm going to do a debunking video after this, but the way she appealed to authority was she said, now I am an obstetrician and I have been on the Dr. Oz show and Oprah many times. And I'm like, so there's your credentials. Credentials, right? How about That's that? That's quite a pedigree. How <laughs> about that? But so here's the question. So you talked about this feeling of being revved up and ready to go, but then the opposite of that, which is that feeling of, I feel like I've been hit by a truck or I'm just not feeling it. People who get a big viral syndrome with cytokines like a COVID, 
have this description. I've been hit by a truck. I can't, I'm de-energized, I have muscle aches. Do you think some of that has to do with this change in energy metabolism that you're talking about? I think that's a great point. I've thought about that as well too. And mm -hmm. I think people that already exactly have that metabolic inertia, even pre-COVID, mm -hmm. I think they are more susceptible to getting that. It makes sense from an energy system point of view. I don't have the science to back it up, but I think that transition does become much, you know, much more natural for people that are more inert you know, by nature. Have you heard about this bradykinin hypothesis with the cytokine storm? A little bit, yeah. A little bit, yeah. yeah. They're saying bradykinin's one of the cytokine components that is causing this. And it, it makes me wonder, because again, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, these seem like really clear independent risks. Absolutely. And it ties into your uh, your approach on this, which is again, these are meta, this is a high degree of metabolic inertia. I like that, I'm gonna steal yeah. <laughs> that, metabolic inertia. It's very hard to get those mitochondria rev revved up to utilize glucose appropriately. And all of that is at least partially manageable with lifestyle. That's exactly right. Yeah, you know, the other thing that's a bit of a paradox, I'm gonna throw a curveball at you, is despite me doing this work in, like I said, Asian and Asian Indians that are at a high risk for that, if you look at the population in India, there's something called the Indian enigma around COVID-19. Yeah, Have tell you me read about that. About that? Yes. So, and I'm seeing this in relatives and people that I know in India where they've got like, they've gotten COVID-19. I've got multiple relatives and distant relatives that have gotten it. And you would think, see that if they're in the US, they would have been in the ICU yeah. because they're morbidly obese, they've got diabetes. I've got some relatives that are above the age of 80 and they're getting through it fine, yeah. you know? So, so this tells us, this, yes, metabolism is a big part of this. Insulin resistance is linked, but what's going on there? And that big basically comes back to the immune system. You know, is there something around the hygiene hypothesis where us purelling ourselves head to toe and not being exposed to microbes in a natural way, is that having some sort of impact? It's funny, I was telling someone from my team and she was like, we need to bring back open defecation. That's what we need to do, <laughs> right? And I was like, that's a little bit open extreme. Open sewers. Right, right, I've exactly. Been, I've been advocating for throwing feces in the street for like years, Ron. I'm glad finally a scientist has come come to my defense on this. Yeah. This hygiene hypothesis thing is fascinating because again, you look at like the Mumbai slums, 60, 80% positivity on antibody tests, death rate very low. Exactly. And it speaks to that because it's not like Indians are without metabolic disease. Like you said, some of them have obesity and and, and so on. It, it is, there is an immune, immunological component. And I do wonder whether they've been naturally exposed to coronaviruses that we haven't, and they've generated a T cell memory response that, right. that, that keeps them a little more safe. Yeah, I mean, their immune system has faced an onslaught compared to what our immune system does, yeah. right? So their immune system is literally looking, oh, you're gonna throw another one at me? I've been here before, I know what to do. But for us, it's like, oh my God, what the heck is this? The immune system revs up, it overreacts, it goes crazy. So we talked about metabolism, but this is, where components of the diet are important yeah. because one of the things I'm worried about is a lot of my patients that are over fasting, mm. like many of them are fasting like crazy because number one, they know it's good for their health, but they're also stressed. They don't feel like eating. So they've lost a lot of weight. And when I look at what they're eating throughout the day, it's not a lot of food. Mm. They're nutrient deprived. They're not eating a diversity of plants. Mm. There's this whole microbiome part of the immunity in the gut that's not happening. And I'm telling people that despite me doing this work and me probably edging on the side of undereating, I'm actually betting on all types of fruit. I, I would rather overeat a little bit during my eating windows now and just diversify the amounts of plants that are in my system so I can upgrade my immune system rather than undereat. Because we know when you're having protein deficiency, you're losing muscle mass, all that stuff compromises immunity. So just be aware of that because many of my patients are over-obsessed on the fasting trend. They're trying to lose a lot of body fat. But in the meantime, I'm afraid that they don't have the diversity in their microbiome to really support adequate immunity during this time. And this is something maybe the Asian Indians have because they are eating a diversity of different plants or exposed to microbes. Their natural immune system is more resilient than ours is.
Man, there's a lot in what you just said that I think could be, you could spend a lifetime <laughs> researching because yeah. the, the microbiome is one component and that is affected by your diet, your exposure to natural microbes. And on top of that, this idea of eating in a narrow window, which I do as well, I'm a one meal a day kind of guy, mm. but I've also expanded, like I used to avoid carbs and do all of this. Now what I do is I have a lot of whole grains, a lot of olive oil, a lot of avocado, much less meat and a diversity of plants, like you said. So it's nutrient dense, but classically I would have thought, oh, I'm gonna start getting insulin resistant and gaining weight because that's what's happened to me in the past. But the difference is with the narrow window and incorporating the fats that slow the general absorption of, yep. the, of the grains, it's worked really well where I've actually lost some weight despite feeling really full yep. and kind of eating like a pig during that window. <laughs> if I'm being honest, I'm just like, give me a loaf of this walnut bread <laughs> and I'm just gonna eat half of it and pour olive oil, like unlimited amounts of olive oil. <laughs> right. And it seems to work. My blood pressure's good. I check my sugar just for fun because I'm kind of a quantitative guy. Yeah. It's been fine. So it's really interesting. And I'll tell you, because I have so many patients on continuous glucose monitors, aka CGMs, many of them that have taken the strategy on, even though their carb load has gone up, their glucose control has been great. Because mm. I tell people, you know, when you eat some healthy carbohydrates, like let's say a small serving of lentils or starchy vegetables, the immediate response is gonna be a spike, but we can't keep overacting to that immediate response because a downstream long-term effect is if you're feeding the right microbiome, you know, the, the, the right bacteria in the gut, long-term wise, they're gonna metabolize sugars and fats. So I tell people, it's like, you know, if you're doing the stock market, you have one price spike, you're not gonna sell or you're not, you're not gonna overact. You wanna look at the overall market trends. It's the same thing with these foods. Yes, there might be a transient uh, glucose spike. But then when I follow them for several weeks or a few months, despite them eating maybe 50 grams or 100 grams more of the right carbs, their overall glucose control is excellent. And I can bet if I were to check their microbiome, it's much more diverse and their immune system is prob probably stronger too. Uh, you know, and I think this is where we start getting into artificial sweeteners and things like that, that I think may alter mm. that microbiome. So even though they have no calories, they do a number on your natural gut flora and that changes some things. Uh, and, and again, we don't, we don't fully understand it's an active research area, but man, it makes you think because we're, we're just scratching the surface of the complexity that is this constellation that is us. Right. And we share it with these, these animals, basically. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's really crazy. That's another thing this Christine Northrup woman was saying in her videos. We're creating chimera, she said chimeras because she doesn't understand science. She said, we're, I'm gonna translate it. We're creating chimeras with foreign DNA. I'm like, woman, look in your gut. <laughs> Look how much DNA. Right. Look at your own genome. Viruses, retroviruses for millennia have incorporated themselves into this part of our DNA. It's, it's how we are connected to the natural world in a way that is so actually beautiful when you come to think of it. It will make you weep. It's so beautiful. And we kind of totally dismiss it. Totally us versus nature. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. I, now I wish I could say something nice about COVID, but I can't, except that <laughs> probably we'll generate some community immunity at some point through a vaccine and through natural exposure that'll then rev up our immune system against this classic yeah, And I think it's teaching us some skills. You know, a lot of my patients that were very dependent, for example, on going to fitness centers for fitness, I've mm. been telling them all along before COVID that many of them are overdoing their exercise. Yeah. Coming back to anaerobic, sorry to be- You don't hear that from a again, doctor right? very often. <laughs> hey, you know, you're exercising too much. This is such a Bay Area thing. You know, buddy, cool it. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, totally. But you know what they don't realize is 80 to 90% of their workouts are in that anaerobic zone. So what I basically outlined for you is when your immune system or when cancer cells experience an anaerobic metabolism, that's an alarm flag for the body, right? Mm. That's an alarm system that produces cytokines. Now, if you're somebody that's training for a half marathon, you're jogging at a high heart rate, because a lot of us might think we're in that aerobic metabolic zone. We're not. 95% of patients that come in when I strap on a heart rate monitor or tell them to wear a Polar or an Apple Watch, I tell them, send me your data or share it with me a week later. None of them are exercising within the optimal heart rate window. Uh. Um, so they don't realize that 80 to 90% of their workouts are in that anaerobic zone. And that is not good because over the long term, that can generate calcification in your arteries. It can create more inflammation. It's sort of that exercise curve where, yes, enough of it is great for longevity, but when you fall off that cliff, then all of a sudden you get these issues. And so one simple rule of thumb, and actually uh, did my own little podcast interview with this guy, he's an exercise physiologist, is a 180 minus your age threshold. It's called the mafetone heart rate. So you're 40 years old, 80 to 90% of your workout should be within 140, not beyond that. But most of my patients are in the 160 plus zone when they're running and training for half marathons. That is such a critical zone because once you get beyond that zone, you're no longer training the mitochondria. You're really more within the anaerobic window and that can generate a lot of inflammatory byproducts. How interesting. So, you know, because a lot of times now as I get older, I'm 47, so 180 minus 47, I should be 133. Mm -hmm. I find that I, I sit in that pocket when I'm exercising at home on a, Stairmaster or a treadmill, but when I get on my bike and I'm climbing hills, I'm 160, 170, and just it's pounding. Yeah. And I feel good. I feel, but but it's funny when I do those exercises for the next few days, I don't feel so good. I love. See, this is why I love. You have so much self awareness because when you are in that zone for most of your workouts, the reason we love it is because we're hooked on adrenaline. You yeah. can feel good after that. Yeah. But studies have shown that when you're in that zone for the next 24 to 48 hours, you're going to consume probably. 30% more carbohydrates. Because literally, again, coming back to there it watermelon is. sugar, you're working mostly in the watermelon sugar zone. So if you're burning a lot of sugar, your brain's gonna crave that sugar. If you're working more in the mitochondrial zone, you are burning a great mix of a little bit of glucose and a lot of fat, your body fat in particular. Uh. So that's why when you do that workout, yeah, you're not gonna come off that workout and feel like a million bucks. You're not gonna get that adrenaline high. But what I found is that mentally, I'm much more even. I don't feel like eating the entire pantry. You're much more focused and you're building mitochondrial fitness. And this gentleman that I, that I actually interviewed, he's actually one of the world's greatest endurance athlete trainers. And he said, even for his top elite athletes, he always recommends that zone. And it's not like they're compromising performance because as your mitochondria gets stronger, guess what happens, E? You're going to become faster and stronger at a heart rate of 130. So if you watch sports, if you watch a soccer match or a basketball game, the fittest athletes at the end, they're barely even breathing. They're like on the mic and they're speaking no problem. Other ones are hunched over. They've been, they're probably an anaerobic. They're yeah. Right, they're tripoding, exactly. Yeah. But that's sort of, and it took me a long time to get used to that because I was a type A exerciser too. So now when I go for runs, if my heart rate goes up, I'll just switch to walking. I don't need uh -huh. to run the whole three miles. I'll mix run and walking. Beautiful thing. I feel so much better about myself yeah. because I tell you, I've been craving that sort of exercise that's slow and low, but I get into like 130-ish. Uh, heart rate, and again, I don't feel that rush of adrenaline, but my mood is better, I eat less, all the things you said, how fascinating. Now, so, and by the way, can I click on one yeah. thing? This is my women that were not losing weight pre-COVID, and I told them, listen, 
sorry to say this to trainers, you need to fire your trainer because your trainer is training you too hard. All you need to do is walk. And they didn't listen to me. Many of them do, but some are like, no, I need to burn more fat. I'm like, that burn you feeling is not burning fat. Yeah. That's lactic acid. Lactic acid. Yeah, you're yeah. causing more inflammation. You can't stick to your diet. Your cortisol levels are going up. And women, cortisol causes more fat storage in men. Right, the whole right. list. And now they've been forced into that. And I've had women shed fat, even though they're burning, quote, less calories. And it's all because of what you said, the hormonal... Um, output of those lower intensity workouts is so much better. Now I'm not banning that. So if I go out for, let's say a walk or a hike or a light jog, if I wanna do a sprint for like 30 seconds or a minute, I'll basically walk really slowly till my heart rate's really low and then I'll run like mad. Mm. And I'll just get up to 140, 150 for maybe a minute max and mm. then I come back. And then if you're doing five or six days a week, if you're feeling great, doing one day of mostly high intensity is probably not gonna wreck you. But most people aren't doing that. It's the opposite. They're doing mostly the high intensity and very little of the low intensity fat burning mitochondrial workouts. Mm. <laughs> so useful. <laughs> I, I, this is so useful. So tell me, how about weights? Where do weight? Where does strength training come into this? Strength training is really important, and I think the mistake I made in the beginning when I talked about these muscle parking lots is we got to build stronger, bigger muscle parking lots. So a lot of people kind of emphasized a lot of the weightlifting, but they mm. gave up the cardio as a result of that. Now it's mm. true that some strength training can build up cardio but not necessarily. Because yeah. I've got some patients, they've been lifting really heavy. They look like this. If you ask them to run a mile, they could barely trot a half mile, right? right. So I think for me, strength is, for me, strength is I want to build adequate functional strength that lets me run faster, jump higher, and be more functional rather than limiting myself with really bulky strength. So a lot of sort of jumping strength, plyometrics, body weight type training. And that's been a shift for me because before I was just trying to lift heavier and heavier weights, right. but I wasn't doing enough of that. And during COVID-19, I've been teaching people to do that more often. Those are different types of muscle fibers that may not look thick and big, but they're super functional. And they're going to help you age better because if you trip or you lose your footing, those fast twitches are going to help you recover. So that's one thing is more functional fitness and strength is really key. Bro, yeah. <laughs> it sounds and to I'm me gonna... like you're just making excuses, bro. Do you even <laughs> lift, bro? Bro. Bro. <laughs> Yeah, we are going to piss off a lot of the bro science people out there. Well, you know, yeah. we'll have to go on uh, Brogan's show. And uh, yeah. dude, th 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 this is super helpful because this is attainable for people. This is Absolutely also attainable is. for people. Both, right? The low heart Both. rate and this. Both. Yeah. Because it, it, and again, now I'm inspired because I'm like, yeah, you know, I was feeling a little bit like a wuss. I, I, I just hear my inner Hans and Franz, you know, <laughs> hey, you little girly man, you're not, your heart rate's not 170. Why are you not pushing? Pump you up, pump up, lift more, lift faster, lift go go and then you're like why do i feel like crap and why am i still fat i don't understand what's going on well i'll tell you my number one goal and i teach it to people is not to lift stronger it's to recover as fast as possible mm. and i was motivated by this because my kids who are juniors in high school when i'd play basketball we do an intense workout no matter what we did, they'd have no soreness the next day. Mm. And I was like, what the hell? You know, like what's going on here? So then I started training myself to recover faster. And it's coming back to what I do during my work day. I'm doing hip openers, I'm doing hamstring stretches, psoas stretches, all this stuff. And now I've gotten myself Z where pretty much every day I can go out and do pretty moderately intense workout without having any soreness at all. I felt better than I've ever had before. But before I was like, every day I'm like going and crushing it. So I'm like, I felt like every day some muscle group is recovering mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be that way. So if you work on faster recovery, you're gonna feel so much better. And that's also lower overall inflammation, which means less injury, less cytokines, less all of this stuff. And that's really what we should be aiming for. Less risk yeah. for COVID-19 complications, that's right. which is where it all started. Man, that's dope.
I like that. I want you to be my doctor. Actually, I need a damn doctor because uh, you know, I, uh, since I left Vegas, you know, I'm gonna have to have you do my serial LD, you know, uh, um, uh, LDLs and all this that I used to do just for fun, just to make myself neurotic. You know, like, well, what will eating this do to my LDL? And of course, as you know, LDL just fluctuating constantly. Right. Like it's not like a one time. Like it's not a function of hey, my LDL is a hundred. No, exactly. it was a hundred five minutes ago. <laughs> That's right. It's right? a very dynamic picture. You know, one way, I, I think we talked about a, a bunch of various areas, but one way I want to stitch all these concepts together is we talked about metabolic, we talked about musculoskeletal, we talked about mental health too, right? We covered yeah. a lot here. One way you want to think about this, and I don't want to get all woo on you, but think of these as energy systems, and many of us have trapped energy systems, okay? So when we talk about metabolic, we talked about how energy is stuck inside our cells. How do we unstick that? We basically improve our diet, and we do more of the right type of physical activity. That's going to get our metabolism flowing again, right? Musculoskeletal, a lot of us are trapped in this position all day. We're not moving. We get a lot of muscle tension, and muscle tension works in both directions. When your muscles are tense, your mind is more tense. You relax, relax the muscles, the mind can free itself too. That's the whole technique of PMR, progressive muscle relaxation, is you know if you can't outthink your way out of stress, at least get the muscles relaxed, and then you can sort of think through it then. So we're talking about releasing the muscles too. And lastly, we talk about mental health. And what is rumination? I tell people it's emotional constipation, right? <laughs> You've got thoughts that are trapped inside your head, but now we talked about writing them down, doing the third person reframing where you're watching that crazy Netflix movie inside your head, that's getting that energy moving along too. So throughout your day, think about those three pillars. Some days my mind's in the right zone, but I know metabolically I'm not doing the right things. I need to get moving more. Or my muscles have been fixed in front of the computer. Let me fix that in some way. If you can some way and some days just think about those three M's and try to you know get unstuck, you're gonna feel much better. And those of us that are grappling with our thoughts, maybe you just need to focus on the muscles and the metabolism first then all of a sudden you'll see a world of difference with how you process those emotions. So a couple of closing thoughts there. Ron, I'm just gonna start calling you Brown Morpheus. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. God help me. <laughs> that was awesome. That was exactly how we should think about it as a, as a body, as a kind of flowing dynamic system. And you know, the, it can come off as woo woo unless you look at it from a system standpoint and go, you know, but yeah, there is a flow of capacity the, the body is a dynamic thing. You know, the, the Japanese, there's a Japanese author, Haruki Murakami, who I've been a big fan of, and he has a book called The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, and it's about a 30-something-year-old dude who's alienated, and he's like, his wife disappears, and all this stuff happens to him, and it's written in a magical realism style, so there's a little weird magic Ooh, in there. I'm gonna check that out. Yeah, very cool, but he talk, he uses this analogy, which I think is big in Buddhist um, circles, especially in Japan, of this blockage. Like this character was experiencing a blockage. And the way he opens it up is he goes on this quest in, internally where he ends up, he's in the bottom of a well and he's reliving Manchuria and all this crazy stuff's happening. And suddenly he opens by the end of the book and the river starts flowing again. Oh, it's, that sounds beautiful. It's really beautiful. And it makes you think of all the things you're talking about. There's a physical opening, an emotional opening, a spiritual opening. There's a dynamic constellation that we are. It is. You know, as much as I used to maybe 10 or 12 years ago kind of criticize the woo-woo approach, the interesting thing is the woo-woo approach is way ahead of science. Yeah. And it's almost like you need science to, you need somebody with an MD, PhD, to call fasting autophagy for it to be accepted, right? <laughs> That's true. It's you like need, you need, need to relabel. You need Peter Atia, You need to use right. mitochondria. And I'm like, these people are thousands of years ahead of us. Yeah, so yeah. maybe because I'm turning 50 next year, but I'm really starting to think I'm going to stop like 
going crazy on the research of today and just follow my intuition and try to learn from these people that didn't have internet, have podcasts to listen from. They just knew based on their inner intuition. And as much as I like to track my data a lot too, sometimes you've just got to unstrap that stuff and just rely on intuition because I think that's something that's eroding with all the technology we're strapping to ourselves right now. So, I'm so, yeah. dude, I'm so with you. And you know, that's funny because I I was such a fucking anti-woo pro-science, <laughs> science. And I still am, but yeah, I'd say same. this, I've opened with age, wisdom, not so much wisdom, I'm an idiot, but you know, this <laughs> idea that the introspection, looking at ancient wisdom and, and seeing how you can apply it is a huge font of wisdom. As long mm. as we don't start talking about antennas and 5G and nanoparticles, we're good, actually. This is helpful. That's what I love about you, Ron, is you're not, you don't shy away from it, but you also don't go full Dr. Oz on it, right? Because right. we need somebody who is the chosen Brown Morpheus, oh Brown Morpheus. <laughs> I'm off white Morpheus. Uh, so dude, tell me about your podcast. How can people find it? So, you know, I'm not podcasting yet, but I'm doing a lot of interviews on different platforms. But some, at some point, I'll probably be launching my own podcast. You need one. But I need one. That's yeah. what people have told me. Yeah, yeah you need one. I, yeah. I, and I'll help in any way I can. Yeah. And, but in uh, the meantime, I'm doing a lot of writing because after these sorts of interviews, I get so many questions around all types of topics. So we'll, we'll add, add a link and a page. But yes. I've written a lot, an updated COVID resource guide. These are all free resources. They're ebooks on sleep and fatigue, on cholesterol, many of the principles we talked about. But people can just download this material and look at the approach that I've used. And since we did the original COVID resource guide, we've upgraded, added some information on vitamin D, which is a separate topic altogether, but but a lot of interesting things. So we'll, we'll include that with the show notes. Outstanding. Can, benefit. can you talk about vitamin D in one minute or do you want to come back and do a show on that? Let me see. Okay, let's try one minute. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you a very high level on supplements in general. Um, so with vitamin, let's just focus on vitamin D. The way I look at vitamin D and supplements is number one, if there is a good mechanistic explanation for why vitamin D would work. That's my first principle. So we do know vitamin D has antiviral properties. We know it can tame down the cytokine response, so it can be an immune modulator. So that's the first requirement I look at. The second thing is vitamin D does have a long track record of safety. You know, I use it in many of my patients that are vitamin D deficient. And then the third thing is you look at the available studies. And there's been a lot of interesting studies done since COVID-19. None have been full-on scale, randomized control, large you know, um, sample size. But there have been enough studies that we've looked at now that show a fairly strong case for individuals that are repleted with vitamin D tend to get lesser infection. So the risk of infection is probably two times greater if their vitamin D is deficient. When they do get infected, it looks like the complications, the severity, and the mortality tend to go up as well. So there's enough anecdotal stuff, nothing that I'm jumping up and down about, mm. but enough anecdotal stuff out there where I think it's reasonable to take vitamin D as a supplemental strategy. And good old Dr. Fauci recommends it too. So there's mm. a little bit of good validation there. But but there we go. Thank you, Dr. Fauci, for being so open-minded. <laughs> Take vitamin D, PRN. <laughs> now, the confounders, there's multiple confounders because we know obese individuals tend to have lower vitamin D because the fat acts as a vitamin D trap. Skin tone, African-Americans, um, Latinos who are suffering a lot from COVID-19 mortality, they're not gonna absorb as much vitamin D. They tend to have lower vitamin D levels. So there's confounding agents out there. And I don't want people to think that vitamin D is a miracle pill, that if we give this to all high-risk populations, they're not gonna die from COVID-19. I also worry about the overall message of these studies because some people think that, hey, I don't need to improve my metabolic function and do all the things we talked about. Give me a pill. I'll pop a couple of pills and I'll be good to go. Heck no, I have not seen that pan out, but I think it's interesting enough where it's a reasonable supplement strategy. 
that essentially I'm going to take away this one minute limit because now I'm really interested in this. And, uh, even though we're going to go a little over an hour, that's okay. Uh, because many people have talked about vitamin D, many people have talked about supplementation. Vitamin D in my mind is very interesting because again, we do have quite a bit of deficiency. And again, the safety of repletion doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to be unsafe to do it. The studies have been masa meno, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and correlation causation is always- That's exactly right. The struggle, but there is that, like you said, darker pigmented populations seem to do worse and they have lower vitamin D levels, I think. I think that's what mm-hmm. the data was saying. Right. So is there a downside? What type of vitamin D would you replete your patients with if they were deficient? Yeah, so it would be vitamin D3. And typically the standard doses that they recommend are usually not sufficient for general population, especially if you have my skin tone or your skin tone and darker. For most individuals, even if they didn't have easy access to getting levels checked, probably taking 2,000 international units daily would be reasonable. Yeah. But for individuals that have a significant history of deficiency, they've got darker skin, they might need more between 4,000 to 5,000. But talk to your doctors if you need to confirm. But I think I think it's a reasonable strategy to use. Tell me about sun exposure. Yeah, so sun exposure is another great way to get it. But now we're hitting the winter season, so I think that's going to be more and more limited. But, you know, for most people, if they want to get adequate vitamin D exposure from sunlight, we call it burn time. So whatever time it would take you for your skin to get, turn red and burn, you take half the burn time and you dose it two to three times a week. That's what you would need. But you need it over your overall surfaces, right? It can't just be in a long sleeve shirt and just through your face. It's got to be good you know, exposure, short sleeve shirt, shorts. And these things are really not going to be tenable in the upcoming winter months. Mm. So I think getting sun exposure, regardless, whenever possible, is good for us because it releases endorphins from our skin that make us feel better. It actually increases the release of, again, nitric oxide too. Um, UVA rays actually elevate that. So I think there's a lot of good um, reasons for us to get more sun exposure, but it's not going to probably amp up vitamin D, especially given the upcoming winter. How do you reconcile that with uh, the uh, thousands of dermatologists that are going to message us angrily right now? I know, they're going to message us angrily, but I'm going to angrily retort back that the guidelines that are set by dermatologists, unfortunately, are not culturally stratified. So I have patients of my skin tone and darker that have single-digit vitamin D levels, and there's Mm. established amounts of research that show that very low vitamin D levels are linked to solid tumors. So as much as, you know, we're worried about skin cancer risk, what about all those other risks that are happening? I have not yet to date met a South Asian person that has had skin cancer, but I've seen plenty of them with solid tumors, insulin resistance, a lot of things that are connected to severe vitamin D deficiency. So I think we have to take those standard guidelines, and I know those are well-meaning, but we have to tailor it to individual ethnic groups if we're gonna Mm -hmm. do the right thing. How do you feel about sunscreen in general? So sunscreen, I think, makes sense. Again, to put it over your face, because that's not going to be a major um, you know, surface area where we're going to be absorbing a lot of harmful you know, vitamin D rays. Or it's not going to be, I'm sorry, a, a vitamin D producing area necessarily. So that's fine. But, but you'll then wrinkle you have, and you can potentially wrinkle, get So you're lesions, basically yeah. preventing the aging. But then again, you got to look at your skin, t- your skin type, your family history. So for some individuals, they've got to use reasonable amounts. But for someone like me, I'm going to use some just to prevent from burning. Right. But I'm not as concerned about that. I'm using it as more of a metabolic strategy and anti solid cancer strategy based on some of the studies out there. Yeah, interesting. You know, it, this has been a change for me. So I used to just sunscreen everything up and, you know, and again, it's like, it's also an Indian cultural thing. Like my parents would yell at me if I get a tan. You know, oh, yeah, you're, you're not so supposed dark. to be dark. You're going to get dark. stock prices go down exactly, when you go dark. Exactly, right? it's so, true. Because yeah. yeah. Indians have a very interesting <laughs> caste system about, about color. <laughs> yes. And um, and so, yeah, so what I started doing though in later years is uh, face, because I did get an actinic keratosis on my nose because uh-huh. um, I grew up in the Central Valley and then we moved to Vegas. So it was a lot of sun exposure. Of sun. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, 
but having no hair, so now I sun, I use a light sunscreen every day on the face and head, but arms and legs, I keep generally right. exposed. And I find I don't burn, uh, but you're right, it feels good to be out in the sun. And I haven't checked the vitamin D level lately, but since you're gonna be my doctor now, right? You're not even taking <laughs> right. new patients. I'm like, yeah. Uh, well, Ron, I'll be showing up. I expect a rectal on the first visit because that's how I say hi. Oh God. And uh, yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna have to shut down the rest of my panel. You're gonna, that, be, you're gonna be high maintenance. I'm, I, can tell I am already. a super utilizer. I'm like the 10% that costs 100% of it. Oh God, help us. Uh, I know, yeah. help us all. So how about, so we talk about that. How about um, other supplements and things like that? Yeah, so I, I think the other ones that would fall in that category, vitamin C obviously has been around for a long time. We've known pre-COVID that taking vitamin C, even a thousand milligrams per day can lower the risk of viral infections and actually lower the durations of those types of infections. Again, getting it through foods makes the most sense. So with any of these supplements, we want to really double click on food and get as much of that possible. It's bioavailable. It's the best way to get it. But I think vitamin C makes sense. Vitamin D makes sense. Um, a lot of our patients are magnesium deficient significantly. So getting some magnesium supplementation is interesting too. Oh, one thing I didn't mention, which is fascinating, is this old metabolism thing that we talked about. When that mitochondria gets shut off, so one of the most interesting chemicals that's an antioxidant in our cells is actually melatonin, believe it or not. Mm. So we think about melatonin as just being generated from the pineal gland, but melatonin is actually produced inside the mitochondria and it is actually a powerful antioxidant. And guess what? That whole mechanism that we talked about with that HIF molecule, when it shuts off the mitochondria, internal cellular uh, melatonin production goes down and all of a sudden the risk of oxidation and toxic radicals goes up. So um, so that's another one. So they're doing studies on melatonin. With as COVID. Being, yeah, yeah, for COVID-19. I saw that and I couldn't yeah. figure out what the angle was So that yeah. because I didn't dig into it. But that's yeah. interesting. It's interesting. that antioxidant, anti-inflammatory you know, ability that it has. Again, yeah. it all ties into this web of uh, what all this is. You know, one thing I wanted to go back on, you know, now that we're gonna just go a little deeper sure. is if that's okay with you. Yeah. We talked about hygiene hypothesis being exposed to natural filth. <laughs> there are a lot of people who are anti-mask wearers who have said that we're reducing our exposure to natural you know, stuff and therefore we're harming our immune system. How do you think about that? Well, you know, we have to think about our current situation now mm -hmm. versus sort of the, the the larger picture of, yeah, boosting our immune system health. Right now, we're in a situation where we have to keep ourselves and the people around us safe. And the masks are the best proven strategy for doing that. So, mm -hmm. so again, uh, although there might be a little bit of science behind that hypothesis, I think in our current environment, it just goes out the window. We've seen the data around the world where masks clearly are having an impact on incidence and in many cases, severity of COVID-19 outcomes. So we've got to stick to masks for now until we see signs that shows otherwise. Got it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I'm thinking if there's any other stuff that people talk about. So they always are talking about vitamin D, they're talking about masks, they're talking about other things. Um, I think that's really, I think we covered a lot. We did quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So one last thing I'll finish with yeah, is yeah. because a lot of my work, people keep asking me, how do we get nit nitric oxide up naturally? We talked about breathing. We talked about the nasal humming. Exercise is still the best way that you can elevate nitric oxide levels. And there are certain foods that can actually elevate it. So one of them is this. So interestingly, nitric oxide is a blood. So there is red fruits. So things like um, watermelon can elevate it, dark, deep colored berries. Mm. Beets are another important thing that can raise nitric oxide levels. So now in the fall, look for a lot of reds and orange type foods too. These can actually elevate our nitric oxide um, production. And also keep in mind that this is actually valid science that antibacterial mouthwash 
can actually limit our production of nitric oxide because it kills the bacteria that actually reduce nitrates. And I learned this from my good friend, Dr. Mark Berhenna, who's an incredible dentist. He's on askthedentist.com. Mm. And there's multiple studies that show the antibacterial mouthwash limits our ability to produce nitric oxide. So, Interesting. So all those popular mouthwashes, you know, wrap them, especially during this time. So. Once again, we're thinking about that symbiotic relationship That's between right. us and those organisms that you live with it. us and not everything is pathologic. Um, how's your patient population holding up in general? How are you holding up in general? I'm doing okay. And yeah. you know, interestingly, a lot of my patients is long, this is all about reframing. Like, mm. you know, a lot of them, they felt suffocated in the beginning, but they found ways to adapt. They found coping mechanisms. And for many of them, I think they found extra time that they didn't have in their schedule, including kids and teens. Like we've talked about the emotional impact on kids and teens. It's been hard, but you know, on the other hand, there have been a lot of teens that are actually thriving in this environment. Mm. Um, I've heard about, for example, teenage girls that say that, you know what? I don't have the stress of thinking about what I have to wear to school and how people are judging me. I can just yeah. get up and go, you know. So there are things, obviously this is not a long-term healthy environment, but we gotta find the things that we can hold on to. You know, what are the skills that our kids can learn that they weren't able to learn in a traditional environment? Resilience is one of them, right? Yeah. You can talk about resilience all you want, but now they're having to learn resilience in a real life pandemic environment. So, so I, you know, I acknowledge all the challenges we're facing, but I also don't wanna catastrophize it so much yeah. that our kids are, you know, overfeeling that this, this this is traumatic. I'm not getting. I'm not going to get through this. You know. We don't want to create fragility. That's right. Uh, we want to create anti-fragility. That's they right. get stronger from this, and they're growing from this. Yeah, I was just talking to my daughter about this. She's 12 and almost going on 13. 13 next month and middle schooler. You know, seventh grade. And every day I comment. I'm like, wow, you've managed to dress down yet one more level. <laughs> like, you know, basically a garbage bag and some pajamas and just turns on the Zoom and goes. And What kind of hairstyle does she have going on? Oh, my boys look like the Beatles right now. It's yeah. her, Hermione from- uh, Oh yeah? Yeah, from yeah, Harry Potter. That. It's just a big bush of like Afro hair. And um, and I told her, I go, you, you, you must really enjoy not having to be in-person school. And she's yeah. like, no, I would go to school like this every day now. Like, this is who I am, dad, I'm this. And I said, good for you, man. Right, that's you know, cool. and she's not getting the pressure back from people making comments about yeah. why are you wearing a garbage bag to school? And, <laughs> um, right. and it's great, and, you know, that's yeah. a great thing. What, what's your take on schools in general? Do you think we're doing our kids a disservice? What do you think's happening It's here? a delicate balance, but yeah. I think we've gotten to the point, uh, everything around COVID-19 is a risk balance ratio, right? right? So I think we've gotten to the point where we have to be very strategic and we have to err on the side of opening the schools up if there's adequate science to show that it's safe enough. Um, because now we're really at a point where, I mean, the long-term manifestations of this and the impact on kids, you know, it can't be good, right? Yeah. And, you know, in my, in my own kids, even though they tend to be fine in this environment, I think there's so many natural things that we took for granted, no matter how stressful of a situation we had at home, school was sort of a buffer insulation away from that. And a lot mm. of kids, unfortunately, experience experience a lot of chronic stress in that home environment, whether it's domestic issues or parents that are type A that are hovering over them 24 seven now watching everything. So so I think we have to have a safe, um, you know, a safe approach to this, but it makes a lot of sense for schools to gradually start opening up when they can, if they can. Yeah, you know? and there's, it's not a black and white thing. It's you know, people seem to think it's a binary switch. It's, yeah. it's really not, and it depends on the prevalence in the community too. It's gonna be very hard to open up in a community where things are surging everywhere. Absolutely. And there's a general level of fear that's quite high, regardless of whatever 
whatever the data shows on kids and younger kids seem to be less problematic than right. the older ones. And colleges seem to be more of a incubation chamber, which why are we sure. surprised? I mean, yeah, <laughs> right, I remember right. college, like, <laughs> come on, dude. Uh, so man, Ron, so we'll put links to all your stuff. Um, people can learn more about everything you're talking about from nasal humming all the way up to, you know. Um, watermelon sugar. Watermelon sugar. <laughs> right, so, yeah. That's right. Perianal melatonin production or whatever you were talking about. And uh, man, it's a joy. It's a joy to have someone actually in the studio as always that's smart and uh, that uh, we go back a long ways. And man, so how, I, 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 let's have you back when you're ready. Sure. Whenever you have something um, new to teach us because you have a, vast repository of wisdom, Brown Morpheus. Oh God, thank and you. I know, it's vaguely racist, but since we're both brown, we can do it. <laughs> it's okay, it's legit, right? So, That's no, right. thank you for this platform. It's, it's a great opportunity to really reach more people. So thanks for the work you do during this time, especially. Oh, thank you, brother. So hey, to the Z-Pack, check it out. Share the video, leave a comment, hit like. If you're on YouTube, subscribe, click the bell to get notifications and leave a comment because it helps juice us up and get this wisdom out to other people. If you wanna support our show and allow us to say all the stuff that we can say without me losing a job or losing a sponsor or losing ad revenue, become a supporter. It's like $4.99 a month on Facebook or YouTube. You get a sort of super secret tribe of people where I may even play my guitar on the show, which is creepy and <laughs> self-indulgent, but it, it really is a wonderful group of self-selecting people that get together and have a good time and learn from each other and are nice to each other, even though they have different political beliefs, which is unheard of these days on the internet. So I love you guys and we are out. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. Peace. Take care. <laughs>